and grab our Bibles to 2 Samuel 19. 2 Samuel 19, page 292 of your pew Bibles. Uh, we're going to start in verse 9. We'll, well, Lord willing, we'll, we'll make it to the end of the chapter. Um, but uh, we, of course, are going through the story of David. We're actually quickly approaching the end of 2 Samuel. It's hard to believe. Um, Second Samuel, I think, is 24 chapters. You can correct me. Some of you will correct me anyways. Um, but while you're turning there, let me just uh, promote something that Mark mentioned. Uh, you mentioned the evangelism assessment. Um, the Kentucky Baptist Convention is going to come next week, and we are going to have an assessment of our church, where we are in terms of our ministries, our evangelistic work, and our missions. Uh, it is the first step in several we're going to take as we, as we approach the end of the year uh, in making plans for next year. I really want us to have a, a clear plan of how we are going to reach Frankfurt for Christ. COVID is, uh, we're, we're on the other side of COVID. I don't know what terms you want to use. We're on the other side of COVID. And uh, every church has been affected by it negatively. And I want us to do all that we can to reach the city for Christ. So this is the first step. I'd like to have at least a dozen of y'all. The church is going to provide the lunch. So if you're interested and serious about uh, who we are as a church and where we can go and what we can become and uh, reaching the city for Christ, let me know. I'd like to have at least a dozen of y'all. Uh, the deacons have to come, so I've already got four, um, and, uh, but I'd like to get at least eight more of y'all. Okay? okay, with that, uh, 292, let, let me try something. You know what to do. <laughs> did I get that right? Did I did it right? Uh, for a Yankee, you're all right, BJ. You're all right. All right. Uh, what we want to do is, because of the passage is so long, we're just going to read a little bit of it, and then we'll look at it as we exegete the passage. Starting in verse 9, 2 Samuel 19, verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of the enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. Now he has uh, fled out of the land uh, from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent his, this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amas, Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. He swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Now, Father, we ask every time we gather that you would do the same thing, that you would, our entire being, would may be opened and transformed by the power of the gospel. We ask this every week, and we ask that it would be true this week as it has been before. Through your word, by your grace, with the power of your spirit, may we become more like Jesus. And may we do so as a corporate body of believers. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. On Monday, February the 11th, 1861, some of you, I believe, were there. President-elect Abraham Lincoln boarded a train in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. There's an S there. Springfield, Illinois, by which he would march through the train ride, his infamous train ride, to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated as president. 
At the time, if you were elected president, the election was in the first Tuesday of November like it is now, but inauguration wouldn't be until March. So you have about five months of, of between your election and your inauguration. Now, remember, Lincoln did not win half the vote. He won, I believe, you can, you can Google this for me when, when you start to fall asleep in a few minutes. I think he won about 39% of the vote. So he has no real mandate. All the while, between his election and the day he got on that train in Springfield to start his journey towards D.C., a number of states had already declared their succession. These include South Carolina December, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana in January, and finally Texas in February, uh, on February 1st, actually. Even shortly after his inauguration, the rest of the southern states would uh, would succeed, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee. At each stop, Lincoln would get off of the train. He would meet with the local people there. And you can read many of his speeches, the ones that have survived. And, and he had really one thing on mind, and that is unity and peace. For example, in Laf Lafayette, Indiana, he said, quote, While some of us may differ in political opinions, still we are all united in one feeling for the union. We all believe in the maintenance of the union of every star and every stripe of the glorious flag. And permit me to express the sentiment that upon the union of the states, there shall be between us no difference. One journalist remarked that as Lincoln marched towards Washington, the flags on the or the stars on the American flag, the question was, what was really holding them together? It appeared as if nothing was. And Lincoln's goal was was to, to do what he could to make unity possible. He was eventually inaugurated on March 4th, 1861. And America went to war. Peace is not the natural state of a human affairs. On this side of Eden, we are in a constant state of division, violence, conflicts. Think about it. Conflict comes easier than peace. Division is easier than reconciliation. Thus, the work of peace is long, difficult, and treacherous. Yet, if we are Christians... It is a task we must take nonetheless. David finds himself not at the beginning of a civil war, but the end of a civil war. And like Lincoln after him, is, is what he's most concerned with is peace, unity, reconciliation. And David provides for us a helpful guide in how we can go about that in our own lives. Notice, first of all, David prepared for peace. Although we might rejoice over David's victory over Absalom, the Civil War created a significant problem. Not only was the state of Israel divided, but most of them sided with David's enemy, his son Absalom. And so the people they, 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 they got excited about becoming king lost. Not only did he lose, but he died. And so his hope of ruling and reigning, it goes with him. David is returning. And the natural question is, oh, no, the guy that we turned against has all the power again. What is he going to do to us? Will he be angry? Will he execute everyone that joined with Absalom? In, in, in the 15th century, late 15th century, 
Henry VII went to war against the sitting king Richard III. And the great final battle was the Battle of Bosworth. And there, Richard III actually died in the battle, which made the transition for Henry VII to become king a lot easier, as you can imagine. What is interesting is before the battle commenced, Henry VII declared himself king, and he said, anyone who fights against me on this day will be declared enemies of the state and traitors of my kingdom. Which meant when Richard III died, and you were on his side, the then sitting king, you are now by the new guy considered a traitor. Well, that's a problem, don't you think? It's a situation that, that Israel, much of Israel finds themselves in. And so much of this chapter then explores David's effort to stitch back together the union of Israel. Now, there are those who are going to want mercy. There are those who are going to want retribution. There are those who are going to want a permanent separation. Yet here comes David with all of this going on, seeking unity. Now, as he, as he prepares to quickly restore his kingdom, others begin to fear. Among them is Judah, the tribe of Judah. And the reason is pretty uh, uh, straightforward. In verses 11 and 15, we see that, that Judah is not involved in the parade welcoming David back to Jerusalem. Now, that's a, a, quite an odd detail, isn't it? Because David is of the tribe of Judah. It was in the city of Hebron, a city of Judah, that crowned David king the first time. Why is it then that David's home tribe isn't so eager to have him back? I'll tell you why. Because they had sided with the other son of Judah, Absalom. And Absalom was declared himself king in the same city of Hebron. It was Judah who went to war, not with David, but with Absalom. No wonder then they are a bit nervous about David's return. So you'll notice in verses 11 and 15, he responds by extending an olive branch because he was more interested in peace than retribution, unity than revenge. So notice how he goes about this. Verse 11, he reached out to their influential leaders. Notice uh, verse 11 uh, and the king sent his messengers to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Now, we've met them before, and we can't go into all the details. These are the high priests of Israel. They were loyal to David. Remember, they were part of the spying for David uh, that, that was against Absalom. So they are loyal to David. That's important for David. Not only are they loyal, they were greatly, excuse me, respected throughout all of Israel. And so could serve as a type of mediators. We, uh, and they can say, I've talked to David, and we've talked to David, and, and we, we, we sympathize with you all. But we really think that if, if, if we just got together and we can help you with this, there can be unity and peace. So through them, David speaks to the elders of Judah. Secondly, notice David appealed to their common humanity. Verse 12, he says, uh, you are... Uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, you've heard that before, haven't you? And the answer is, of course, it's a Johnny Cash song, right? Um, uh, 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 um, now I'm trying to get in my head. Give me a minute, right? You know what to do. Um, 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 oh, that's going to bother me. Someone's going to have to Google that. Um, uh, somebody bone and flesh and you're the one for me is how the chorus ends. That's going to bother me. Guess what we're listening to on the way home. But he uses this language, of course, that doesn't come from Johnny Cash. Sorry to ruin your childhood. But, but it comes from the Bible. 
In Genesis 2.23, what does Adam say to Eve? He writes a poem. You see that, ladies? The first words recorded from Adam to his bride was a love poem. Now, my wife shouldn't expect that, but, but, but you know, Adam's wife could, right? And what did he say? You are a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We were both made in the image of God, both loved and created by our maker. That's appeal to common humanity. By the way, David used the same language earlier uh, in 2 Samuel 5 when he became king. He said that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, that's in Judah, and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In other words, to say, we are all made in the image of God. We all are created by the same God. And through that truth, we are together in this. Let's see if we can work it out. Thirdly, David demonstrates graciousness. Now, this is interesting here in verse 13. David demotes Joab, the general of his army, and in his place promotes Amasa as his general. Now, most agree this is probably because David has become aware of Joab's role in his son's murder, his execution. Murder's probably too strong for his execution, given it's in battle. And so David thinks, you know what? I gave you a direct order. You violated it. You cannot be my general. Most see that as a reason David is giving. But I want you to pause and think about what David is actually doing here. Now, who is Amasa? For those who weren't paying attention last week, Amasa is the guy who was Absalom's general. Let's put it in, in, in more recent terms. Can you imagine if Abraham Lincoln, after the war, he's like, man, we got to put this union back together, right? This, I mean, we're, this is a mess. I'll tell you what, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to have Robert E. Lee as the new general of the military. That's got some problems with it, doesn't it? Now, imagine if you're a union soldier who fought some of those battles against Robert E. Lee. And you watched as he led his army to fight the people that you love. That's probably not going to work. That's exactly what David does. Amasa was a general of the enemy army. Not to mention, he lost, right? He had the bigger army and he still lost. But I think what we need to see here is that David is extending an olive branch. He, he, he is saying, look, I'm willing to, to, to recognize That yes, we have a path that is very difficult and we cannot overlook it. But with that said, I trust in your skill and in your leadership skills and your ability on the battlefield. If we can work it out, surely we as a nation can work it out. I do think there's some real wisdom there. A little clear complications. Notice secondly here, not only did David prepare for peace, he pardoned others for peace. This is verses 16 to 30. We, 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 we have to do a little bit of skipping here. We're already running out of time. David's campaign of reuniting the kingdom continues. And so he extends to people generous pardons, even those who had abused him and taken advantage of him. There's two examples here worth, worth looking at. The first is David pardons Shimei. Now, I don't know if you remember Shimei. Shimei's the guy that was shouting curses over at David, and in fact, was throwing rocks at David and his men, right? Just said everything awful under the sun. I'm so glad you're, you're leaving. God is judging you. You're a terrible leader. Get out of here. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, right? And, and you remember that, that one of the guys we're about to meet wants to just, just go, go behead him, right? This is silly. Just, just give me the word, awesome. I'll go do it. They're like, no, 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 no. It's, it's fine. 
Well, now David is returning, and guess who shows up wanting a pardon? It's this cat. And guess who doesn't deserve the pardon? It's this cat, Shimei. And yet that's exactly what David does. Go down to verse 19 and 20. I want you to see Shimei shows up with a large army or about a thousand men, not a large army, a thousand men. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe. And that's why he hates David so much. Go down to verse 19 and 20. Shimei said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. This is confession. This is repentance. Now, now notice here he confesses, verse 9, he is guilty without justifying his actions. He doesn't say, okay, I admit I did so wrong. But you know, I had a really difficult childhood. I know I was heaping stones and trying to kill you myself, but you just need to know. You just need to know. My feelings got hurt and I got really triggered. Um, no, he didn't do that. What he does is say, look, what I did was wrong. And I confess to you that it was wrong. And you owe me absolutely nothing. And there's no excuse for what I did. And in verse 20, he demonstrates his sincerity. Yes, is it convenient? Of course it is. But at least on the surface can we say that he, Shimei, does more in seeking reconciliation with a guy he hated than most Christians do with people whom they share a pew with. Let's be honest. We, we, we can criticize Shimei all we want to. He's doing more than most of us are doing. There are people in your life right now, you refuse to pick up the phone because they hurt your feelings. Or because you've, you've created a scenario in your head that it'll never work out. At least he's made the first efforts. So not only does he pardon uh, Shimei. Can, can, before we move on to Shimei, can I make just one more note? Um, what David pardons Shimei, but he doesn't trust Shimei. At the end of David's life, David is on his deathbed. He's talking to Solomon. He says, don't trust Shimei. And in fact, shortly after he takes reign, Solomon has to put Shimei under house arrest. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. But at least he extends the pardon. Secondly, he pardons Mephibosheth. Now, again, I wish we had more time here. Remember, Mephibosheth was this, uh, is the last remaining heir of Saul, and David showed him great kindness. But as David was fleeing Jerusalem, uh, Mephibosheth's servant comes and says, look, Mephibosheth has betrayed you. And David, in, in an act of, of frustration, says, okay, I'll take everything away from Mephibosheth and I give it to you, right? Well, now Mephibosheth shows up and he says, no, 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 you, you've misunderstood. I, I, I never betrayed you. I was broken the day I heard that you were exiled from your own nation and kingdom. And so notice the attitude of repentance, verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back and saved him. In other words, Mephibosheth looked like a millennial after one week of moving outside of mom and dad's house at the age of 38. Right? Right? <laughs> Millennials were already triggered. It's okay. I'm a millennial. I can make fun of my people. It's okay. But notice that this is, this is the attitude of repentance. He says, the day I heard of it, I went into a state of mourning, of, of grief, because I was saddened by this. And anything you heard from, from someone else, 
isn't true. Let me say to you, I have not forsaken you or my love for you. And so what David does is he splits it half and half. Half goes to Ziba, half goes to Mephibosheth. We move on. But this is, this is what we need to see here is that David shows great kindness and graciousness to those who on any other day don't deserve it. But David is, is interested in peace. And notice this comes at great cost to him. In fact, the same guy that wanted to behead Shimei wants to kill him again. And David says, no, 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 no. This is a day of celebration. This is a day of kindness, not a day of execution and revenge. One last thing to look at, verses 31 to 43. David provided for peace. The final individual we meet is a guy named Barzillai. Um, and his name, you have to spill it right, will be on the quiz at the end of the service. Barzillai the Gileadites. We meet him in verse 31 to 32. He's an aging man who, although we, we, we didn't skip it, but we didn't spend a lot of time on it, he and some others provided for David on their way out of the city, right? He, they provided food and other supplies for him and his loyal men. And, and so he travels from another town, which is a long trip, as an aging man. And so it demonstrates to the king that his affection for him was genuine and, and real. And so um, Barzillai represents the constant supporter despite circumstances. And we all need those sort of people in our lives. Well, what David does when he sees him, and he remembers his kindness and graciousness to David in time of need, he says, I tell you what, won't you come to Jerusalem? You can stay in my palace, and everything you ever want or need, I'll see to it that you have. Barzillai is an aging man. He says, look, I, I know my days and years aren't long for this earth. And that would be a difficult uh, trip for, for me to, to make all the way to Jerusalem. So I'm, I'm going to have to respectfully pass. And David respects that for him and shows his graciousness but then Barzillai says, Look, King, what if I sent to you my son? We'll meet his son later, named Chinem. He sends him to Jerusalem to be in David's household. Notice there that, that David is providing for the longevity and the health of for generations this family who had provided for him. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this text? I do believe David is wise to pursue peace instead of revenge. Revenge and retribution would have been the natural reaction, particularly in the ancient Near Eastern world and increasingly in ours. Yet he worked to mend bridges. He rebuilt broken relationships, even at personal cost. David provide, provides for us a model of how to seek peace with those whom, with whom we have conflict. Can I give you just three points of application uh, before dismissing? The first is, if we want peace and reconciliation, if we want unity, there must be a willingness to forgive. There must be a willingness to forgive. Forgiveness is not the ignoring of sin. It is the conquering of it. You have got to see that. Too often we think, well, I can't forgive. I, I, just, just, if you only knew what he did. We, 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 forgiveness is to recognize sin has been done. It is to recognize there are wounds and hurts and pains. But it at the same time says, if this is to be conquered, if we are to be free from this, it must be forgiven. After all, if we believe in Christ crucified, is there not hope for forgiveness for anyone, including you and me? Forgiveness is not the ignoring of sin, it's the conquering of it. Bitterness, grudges, vengeance, 
That is the surrendering to sin. Forgiveness is the crucifying it. Until sin is addressed and then crucified, there can never be peace or reconciliation. And the only way to crucify it is with forgiveness. If Jesus can hang from the cross, here are people he created in love, his fellow image bearers. He say, Father, forgive them. Surely that person that the Lord is putting on your mind right now, you can forgive them. Forgiveness gives us freedom. You can continue to burn bridges. You can continue to hold on to hurts for decades. You can continue to, when you see them across Kroger or Kroger's for, for some of you from, the, from weirdos from the South or Walmart, some of you weirdos from the South, you see them from a distance and you, you do this thing and you take off the next aisle. You can live like that for the rest of your life or you can take the cost of forgiveness and be free forever. Choose this day which you will decide. But do not tell me you believe that you are fully forgiven by Christ if you are unwilling to extend the same grace to others. No one has ever sinned against you nearly as much as you have against your Creator and Redeemer. And if He can forgive you, surely you can forgive others. And when a nation refuses to forgive, a nation chooses tribalism. And when you have tribes, you have warfare. Turn on your news. Secondly, he has an attitude of meekness. Jesus tells us simply in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. To be clear, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. Meekness is genuine strength. Chances are, you know someone, and I think there are people in this church who are a natural uh, uh, and and, and uh, they are a natural model for meekness. These are sort of people, they may not say much, but when they do, everyone stops and listens and hangs on every word they say. Meekness, it is strength because it requires humility when everyone else chooses pride. It requires gentleness when everyone else chooses harshness. It chooses strength when everyone surrenders to their base desires. Meekness is strength. This strength is not in muscle, but in presence, wisdom, and love. How, how strong must it be for David to look at Shimei, a guy with rocks in his hand, an army by his side, and he says, you are forgiven. A strength. Strength. Most of us, we think we are strong when we become keyboard warriors and we own the libs or, or we go after the right or something like that neighbors and friends and high school sweethearts and whatnot destroyed them online because that makes us strong. It proves that we are weak. The strength to forgive, the strength to, not to hold on to grudges, the strength to leave vengeance with God. Meekness acknowledges wounds, but is strong enough not to be weakened by them. And far too many of us are too weak. And we are raising weak people. Thirdly, a commitment to kindness. Paul notes in Galatians 5.22 that among the other fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Colossians 3.12, put on then, Paul writes, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Gospel kindness is not the same as niceness. Rather, it is deeds of grace uh, directed towards those who are unworthy of it. Imagine, if you will, if we lived in a nation 
where we were quick to forgive, we were strong in meekness, and we were genuinely kind to one another. The news would be a whole lot more boring, wouldn't it? And that would be a good thing. I mentioned Lincoln earlier, and I think it's worth returning back to him. Four years after that election, after four years of war, Lincoln was reelected. And many didn't know if he was going to be reelected, but a few victories in battle certainly assured he would be reelected. His second inaugural address is the second shortest inaugural address in American history. I shared the longest one with you last week. The shortest one was Washington. It was something like, yo, I'm the president, and that was it. It was something like that. Those of you who are about to fall asleep, Google that for me. His speech was given 41 days before his own assassination. At the time of his reelection, it had been 32 years since Americans had reelected the president of the United States. Pretty significant. Lincoln used this address, the nation was still at war, to promote peace. With malice toward none, he said, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations, north and south, east and west. Unfortunately, reconciliation is rare today. Few desire it, few seek it. But for us as Christians, we must see reconciliation and peace and unity and love as a natural extension of the gospel by which we are saved. Given that Christ has secured peace with God, we ought to seek the same peace with one another. Paul, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. May the God of love and peace be with you. In fact, I think this story, when I was reading it, it, it rings sort of familiar. I, I doubt you're, you're very familiar with this story. They were part of David's story that we don't read very often. But it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Think about it. What we have here is the king of Israel, David, is parading towards a throne. And along the way, he makes peace. He extends grace. He secures his kingdom. This parade will culminate with a palace and a throne. I've read a story like that before, haven't you? For generations later will come another son of David, who too will participate in a parade marching towards Jerusalem. And along the way, he will make peace. He will extend grace. And he will announce his kingdom has come. The difference with this son of David is that this son of David, his parade doesn't end with a palace and a throne. It ends with a cross and a tomb. 
But the good news is, the tomb couldn't hold him for long. Thus this hope of peace, which will be shattered, we'll see, Lord willing, next week. This hope of peace always seems to be beyond our reach. But now that Christ is risen from the dead, reconciling men with their maker and redeemer, so too, beloved, let this hope begin here among the people of God. Let us practice forgiveness. Let us strive for reconciliation. And let us promote peace among one another and among others so that others can see and experience Christ is risen he is risen indeed. His story will become ours. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.